that Jesus tells that um, for me personally, uh, it is quite possibly the most difficult parable or story that Jesus tells in all the Gospels. Um, Very difficult to understand. Um, So difficult that as I studied and I looked at different commentaries and scholars, none of them seem to agree on what they think Jesus was specifically trying to say. Generally, yes, but specifically the point he was trying to get at. Um, So much so that they can't even name it the same thing. Every book I picked up named this parable something else. The, The parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the crafty steward, the parable of the the shrewd manager, and you just don't know, is is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is he the hero or the villain? It's really difficult. So I say all of that to say that, friends, prayerfully, as much as I can trust on the Spirit of God, I try to land on exactly what I thought Jesus was trying to get at here, okay? And this is what I think, ultimately, what I think Jesus is trying to say, at least one of the things he was trying to say, is that we are called as followers of Christ to maximize what God has given us in order to leverage it for his kingdom and for his glory, okay? Maximize what God has given us in order to leverage it for his kingdom and for his glory. And so we're going to go ahead and read Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And then we'll pray together and we will jump in. Only one more thing I want to say, and this may not be necessary to say, but I just want to be very clear. We're going to talk today about some achieving, about maximizing resources, particularly even like wealth and and education and those things. And I just want to say, in case it brings this up in anybody, um, we here at Redeemer, we do not ascribe to what has historically been called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We do not ascribe to this idea that you do what God has called you to do, and he's going to make sure you're always healthy and wealthy. You don't do it, then you're going to be sick and poor. We do not believe that, okay? Sometimes in our lives, it is, it is God's will that we go through difficult circumstances, and he's doing things in our life through those difficult circumstances. But it's also in his good pleasure to bless us with good things, and sometimes in abundance. Amen? All right. So I just want to make that clear before we jump into this. So Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I haven't been able to speak this long without coughing. I feel like I'm speaking a mile a minute, but I'm just enjoying it this morning. So Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You can turn your Bibles, or it'll pop up here um, on the screen. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will, co- will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. 
so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me, friends. Father, I do thank you so much um, that you are kind to, to choose me to have me here to, to, to proclaim your word um, to your people. Father, I do pray um, that in your mercy and your grace you would grant Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I do ask that you would grant me to proclaim and communicate what I sense you've given in your word with a great deal of clarity, Lord, with conviction. And Lord, you would add to it your effectual power to accomplish in the hearts and the minds of every person present exactly what you've sent your word forth to accomplish. May your name be glorified. Lord, may we be changed. May we be challenged, convicted, encouraged, inspired. And above all, Lord, I pray that you would save us. We give you the glory and the honor. Be with our children. Lord, as they learn, as they are taught that, Holy Spirit, you would cause your word to sink down deep. And even as seed soil and sown in good soil, one day you would reap a harvest 30, 60, and 100-fold times that which was sown. Children, eventually men and women of God who call on your name and live faithfully in this world. We give you the glory and beyond the praise. Thank you for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So friends, let's, let's take a look at this passage um, to kind of figure out what Jesus is trying to get at uh, in, in this particular passage. So Luke begins by telling us, giving us some context. He says that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Those are those who he chose to follow him those who he's pouring his life into. We would say these are the first Christians. However, when we get to the end of this particular section in verse 14, which we're not going to read, uh, we learn that there were also some Pharisees present. Now, Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders who were also opponents of Jesus. These were people who didn't like Jesus very much. And they were also listening in. They were present as well. So it's likely that Jesus told this particular story in order to both teach his disciples something about what it means to follow him, to be faithful in the kingdom of God, while also condemning to some degree the ungodliness of the Pharisees, those people who were opposing him and opposing his message. And so he tells this story. Jesus says that there was a rich man who had a manager. Okay. Now, for most of us, uh, this, the understanding of this relationship doesn't land very well for a couple of reasons. One, we're so far removed from a culture where this kind of relationship was normal. But secondly, because most of us don't understand the magnitude of wealth that would require this kind of relationship, okay? But I think I have a great relationship of what this, what this would have looked like. We go to this picture here, right here. How many of you guys know who these two people are? 
That's Alfred and Batman. Exactly. Bruce Wayne, or, or, or Batman, right, is a billionaire and a superhero. But if you're familiar with the movies or the cartoons, you know that that other man, Alfred, he's the one that really runs the show behind the scenes, right? He organizes just about every aspect of Bruce Wayne's and Batman's life. And without him, without Alfred being behind the scenes, running his life, managing the money, being in his ear as he's out there doing his superhero stuff, Batman and Bruce Wayne would be lost, right? What's more, if Alfred goes off the deep end and he mishandles Bruce's money or forgets to look out for Batman when he's out in the world, Batman's going to be broke and probably going to be dead. In a similar way, this manager from this story that Jesus tells would have been in charge of organizing the life and the livelihood of this rich man, right? Managing the the flow in and out of his money, his day-to-day, all these things. His faithfulness in handling the rich man's life and possessions was pivotal to the rich man's survival. So the moment that this rich man realizes that this guy, this manager, has been swindling, using unresponsibly his wealth, the manager has to go. He fires him right on the spot. Now here's where the story becomes a little funky. Because the now unemployed manager realizes that, he, that he's upriver without a paddle. Not only is he without a job, he also doesn't have any other venerable skills in order to earn a living for himself. Listen to what he, what he says is actually pretty funny. In verse 3, he says this. He says, I'm a weakling. Right? He says, I don't have physical strength to dig. I don't have the physical ability to do manual labor. What's more, I'm not about to be out there begging. You can imagine, and today he would have said, I ain't going to be out there begging with all this Gucci and Prada and whatever else, whatever else wealthy people wear. Not me. And so he has a brilliant idea, and the idea is, is definitely brilliant. It's genius. He says, you know what? I know that my master, my boss, has a lot of people who owe him money, and they don't know that I've been fired. So this is what I'll do. This is what I'll do. I'll go ahead and find a couple of these people, probably the ones who owe him the most money, and I'm going to tell them, hey, however much you owe, go ahead and slash it into about half. And so he finds these two people, and he tells them to slash it into about half. And he does this because he says, by the time they find out that I'm no longer the manager, then they're going to look out for me the way I've looked out for them. But here is where it gets extremely weird. The boss man, the rich man, catches wind of this. He catches wind of this. And instead of him being livid with this man for not only stealing from him once, but stealing from him again, he commends him. The rich man looks at this man who is a thief and a liar and commends him, congratulates him on being so shrewd or intelligent or sharp-witted. 
And so somehow the villain of Jesus' story ends up being the hero in the end. And it's very confusing. How does this happen? Well, I think that the point of the parable, what Jesus is trying to communicate, particularly to his disciples, is summed up in the last couple of sentences, last couple of verses, particularly the second half of verse 8 through verse 9, where Jesus says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. In other words, brothers and sisters, I believe that Jesus tells this story and makes this man the hero because he finds commendable the manager's ability to use his worldly means for his greatest benefit, to use his limited resources and then leverage them in order to meet his his needs. And what we see in Jesus' words here is both a rebuke and a command for us. And here's the rebuke. Here's the rebuke. The rebuke is that the people of the world, the people who do not follow God, who are not a part of the covenant family of God, are better at their dealings in the world, particularly those dealings surrounding wealth and resources, than are those who are part of the family of God, essentially Christ uh, Christ followers. Put another way, God's people are not as as good at using their means for godly gain as the people of the world are for, for ungodly gain. I'll say that again. I'll say that again. The people of the world, those who are not a part of the covenant family of God, are better at using their means for ungodly gain than followers of Christ are for the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And here's the thing. I think we all know this. I think intuitively we all understand this to be true. And I want you to think about this. Why is it so impressive to us when a Christian, someone we believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus, makes it really big at something? Take a look at these these pictures right here. How many of you guys know who these people are? Shout them out if you know who they are. That was not a good idea because I didn't understand anything (laughs) anybody was saying. Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow. Who's up there in the right-hand corner? Bono. I knew you would know that. I knew you would know that. Bono. And, and And, of course, Steph Curry. Here's the question for us. Why is the fact that Steph Curry is the greatest three-point shooter in NBA history and the fact that he's also a Christian, why is that such a big deal to us? He's a great, all-time great and also a Christian. Why is the fact that Tim Tebow is the greatest college football player of all time and also a Christian such a big deal to us? And I could argue that Tim Tebow is the greatest college football player of all time. Okay? Why does it matter so much to us when Bono, lead singer of the mega band U2, says some Christian things, even though most of us are not even sure if he's really following the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you see him with Eugene Peterson, who's fantastic. But nobody really knows if he was a Christian. We just know he said some Christian things and took a picture with Eugene Peterson. But why is it so important to us to claim Bono 
to say Obama's a Christian, that's amazing. He's a Christian. It's because, brothers and sisters, we know that it is woefully common to see people maximize their gifts, their talents, and their resources for their own fame and gain. And it is just as rare to find faithful followers of Christ who are doing the same thing, maximizing their gifts, their talents, and resources for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. We know it to be rare. So that when we see Christians being great, maximizing their gifts, their talents, and their money, or whatever to glorify God, we're so impressed by it, even if they are just a maybe, kind of, or potential follower of Christ. Consider Kanye West. Think about how happy we were when we saw that he was making Christian music. Was it just me? How excited we were that Kanye was a Christian. Yes, he's on the team. Praise the Lord. We ain't got to listen to that other stuff no, no more. But how many of us, I don't know where Kanye is really with his faith. Definitely not based on his newest stuff. But it does something to us to be able to claim somebody for the team who's just being great. And the reason being because we don't know many people who are doing we, we don't have a lot of other, other ones. There's not a lot of Christian Kanye's out there that we can be sure are really serving and living for the Lord and trying to glorify God. Am I right? There's not a lot of them. And what Jesus is saying is that there should be more. Jesus is saying that the people of this world are more shrewd and are more capable of figuring out how to maximize and leverage their resources for their own selfish gain than Christians are for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying here that we, as his followers, as members of his kingdom, we should be more shrewd. We should be more capable of doing this than those in the world because we have a greater motivation. Our why, brothers and sisters, is greater than their why. When Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is not downplaying the acquisition or the possession of wealth or resources. That's not what's happening here. Instead, Jesus is reminding us that, one, we don't own anything. Okay? He owns it all. I was blessed um, to hear from uh, a, a teacher of mine. It, it was pretty mind blowing honestly because I never thought about it this way. Um, how many of us understand what tithing is? You understand what tithing is? Tithing means essentially to give 10%, at least 10% of what you earn to God. Okay. Now, um, essentially that would mean giving to the local church. Um, some people mean things that just mean kind of philanthropic giving, whatever it is. This is, this, this, this is not that sermon. Drew, you can, you can preach that one. Um, this is not that sermon. But I had a teacher say, and it really blew my mind. He said, we look at tithing as, if, as, as us giving God 10% of, what of 100% of what is ours. When the way we should see it as, we're keeping 90% of what is God's. 
right? God owns 100% of it, and we're keeping 90%. And when you think about it that way, you start to think, man, I might need to, might need to be a little more generous with what isn't mine. <laughs> might need to give back to God a little bit more of what belongs to him already. So first thing is, we don't own anything. He owns it all. Second thing is this, we've been entrusted with everything we have for just a little while as a manager. And for that little while, brothers and sisters, we need to milk it for all it's worth, for the glory of God and for the building of his kingdom. And I'm going to say something. You guys have been really quiet this morning. I don't know if it's because I'm not making sense or there's conviction, but I'm not going to ask you all to confess at once. But I'm going to say this part right here. And this may be a little challenging. I prayed through it. Lord, should I say this? I don't want people to feel. But you know what, man? I'm going to throw it out there and trust the spirit of God to to let it land where it lands. And I'm going to say it's a bold statement, friends. For too long, Christians have been practicing underachieving and calling it humility. For too long, Christians have been practicing laziness and calling it just trusting in the Lord. Friends, God has given each of us gifts and abilities and resources, and God wants us to be shrewd. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to be sharp-witted like this manager was, and he wants us to maximize these gifts and these resources, not for self, not for pride, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. And with that said, I know, I know our people. There's some of you here who hear this sermon and you're feeling pretty good about yourself this morning because you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad to hear that because underachieving isn't even in my vocabulary. <laughs> some of y'all in here like, hey, I knew God wanted me to be a, be a boss. That's why I'm a boss. <laughs> I understand that's some of you, right? Some of you live by that go hard or go home, full throttle all the time. But before you start to feel good about yourselves, the point that Jesus is making here is not merely just how well you maximize your talents and your resources, how hard you go, how great you are, okay? It's not just about becoming the greatest three-point shooter of all time, the greatest college football player, biggest band, biggest bank, whatever it is. It's not about that. Do not assume that Jesus was commending this manager simply for doing something amazing, even though he was deceitful. Let me say this again. Jesus is trying to emphasize how well this man maximized his resources and leveraged them for his own benefit. And he's challenging us as the children of light, the followers of God, to maximize our resources, not for our own benefit, but for the kingdom and for the benefit of others in this world. So, yes, you might be killing it. Yes, you might be achieving great things. You might not be lazy. You might not be an underachiever. But the question to ask is, why? What is your why? Why are you going so hard? Why are you achieving so much? And you see, friends, if we're honest, some of us are people pleasers. I'm going to say it again. Some of us are people pleasers. And if we're honest with ourselves, we work as hard as we do. We accomplish all that we accomplish because we really, really need people to like us. We really, really need people to validate our worth. 
Some of us friends are just insanely competitive. We can't succumb to the idea that somebody is better than us in anything, and so we always strive to be the best. Some of us, we just got to get to this money. We just got to get to this bread. Because if we're honest, we do not feel okay or safe unless the bank account reads a certain amount. Regardless of the fact that God says he closed the fields, how much more won't he clothe you? Regardless of the fact that God has promised to care for you. And herein lies the danger of what Jesus says about money, brothers and sisters, particularly about being mastered by money. In verse 13, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is saying, friends, in no uncertain terms, that there is no neutral ground in this department. There is no neutral ground in this department. And don't get it twisted. Jesus is speaking here very specifically about money. And here is big news. You probably didn't know this. We all need money. We all need money. If you don't need money, I need to speak to you after service and learn how you've done this. But we all need money. You cannot get away from pursuing money. Every one of us has a necessary relationship with money. But here's the thing. Every one of us also has a master. Every one of us also has a master. And when it comes to money and God, there are only two camps. Either you are mastered by money and God is subservient to you, or your money is subservient to you and you submit it to God who is your master and the true owner of it all. Those are the only two camps. There's no middle ground. But of course, this can be applied to more than just literal money. You think about influence, career, education, accolades, promotion, praise, the pleasure of people, whatever it is, either it is mastering you or you are mastering it and leveraging it for the sake of the kingdom of God. I always think about God's conversation with Cain right before Cain murdered Abel in the Old Testament in Genesis. If you ever get a chance to read it, read it. Every time I think about the battle to master money and not be mastered by it, Cain is essentially complaining to God that God is more pleased with Abel's sacrifice, Abel's giving, than Cain. And Cain is becoming furious, murderously furious, ultimately, with Abel. And God says to Cain, he says, why are you angry? He says, if you do well, won't it go well with you? He says, but in your case, he says, sin is at the door. He says, sin is at the door. And this is what God tells him. And you must master it. Friends, we cannot get away. And of course, Cain's case, he was mastered by it. We cannot get away. From this battle, we battle with the need for money. The call for us as kingdom followers 
is to master it and then submit it to the master and not be mastered by it. And if you think that's an easy thing, well, I don't think any of us do. Master it and not be mastered by it. And here's the crazy thing about this idea with money. You don't have to have a lot of money to be mastered by it. I want you to understand that. You don't have to have a lot of it to be mastered by it. There are people who don't have a lot of money and their life is ruled by trying to get it. The purpose of their life is trying to get it. And there are a lot of wealthy people there who are very generous and really, really trying their best to submit that thing to the Lord God. And I love being around those people. I, lo I love giving them opportunities to submit that, that, that money. But, I probably shouldn't say that as a pastor. If you have any problems with that, email drew at redeemeratl.org. But no, we must master it. And I want to leave you with a few things to keep in mind to help us as we go forth and continue in this battle, right? This fight for, to, that we need money and we pursue money or education or influence or excellence or whatever while submitting it to God as our master and not the other way around. The first thing I want us to keep in mind is this. Use worldly wealth and resources. Do not be used by them. Um, historically, I don't come from a background with a lot of money. And I have, a, I have a weird relationship with it to the point where I don't too much like talking about it. That's not my, um, I, don't, I don't like the stress of managing money and that's just, I don't, I don't like it. It gives me a certain level of anxiety. You know, my wife knows this. She'll ask me a question about the bank account and my, I, my blood pressure just shoots through the roof. I just, I don't, I don't like it. Um, but being around people with money has helped shape this perspective uh, on money for me particularly because growing up with a lot of people who didn't have money, money was just, it was abundantly, above all, a status symbol, right? That, that's what it was, you know? Um, and so to have money, you had to wear it. You had to drive it. You had to live in it because that was its purpose so that you could know that I was worthwhile. And I never forget, I was working um, corporately, and there was a, uh, a white guy, um, uh, older white man. I really, really loved this guy, and he would just talk to me about stuff. And one day he said some, something to me that was just mind-blowing. I, I had already had a college degree, working towards a master's, all of this, and I'd never heard it. He said, you know, Leon, money is just a tool. It blew my mind to see money as a tool, a means to an end. Because all my life I'd been told that money was the end. Right? And that's what happens when money becomes the end, you become used by it. But the call here, friends, is to use worldly wealth and resources. Don't be used by them. Master them. Do not be mastered by them. Jesus is our master, and we are the manager of all that he has entrusted to us. The second thing I want us to keep in mind is this. Remember that wealth and everything else you have in the here and now is temporary. One day, friends, we will give up all that we have in this life, every bit of it. I'm going to tell you something, man. I don't mean to sound cynical in any way. But as I watch the funeral procession that seems to have been going on for three months now for the Queen of England, I'm looking at all this pomp and circumstance. 
And all I could think about, I want you to get your mind around this. They had this plane that was as big as like 10 of these buildings. They had these, these fighter jets protecting them. They have all of these guards, all of this gold and pomps and circumstance. And you have to know that, that all of that is surrounding a corpse that is rotting and turning to dirt that's not even the size of this table. You understand? She could care less if she was in all that pomp and circumstance or in a little, little box or burlap sack. What I'm saying to you, friends, is listen. I don't care how much you have. I don't care how much you have. That's where we all going to be. <laughs> That's where we all going to be. And what's going to matter is what happens next. When you stand before the master, the one who always owned it all, and have to give account for what you did with it. I'll move on. Y'all quiet. Y'all quiet. Y'all quiet. Ain't nothing wrong. Ain't nothing wrong with honoring this queen if we have some monarchical whatever that word is, people in here. I'm okay. We've got some English folks in here. You, you cool. You can do that. I just want you to keep perspective. That's all. Perspective. And the last one is this. Bless others as much as you possibly can. Caring for others with the resources we have now is one way to ensure that we will be cared for in eternity. And friends, if you don't know this, that is the gospel. Sacrifice of self for the benefit of the kingdom and others is the gospel. That is what Jesus did. When Jesus came and when Jesus died, he was doing nothing less or more than he calls us to do. Giving of his life, giving of his self for the kingdom and for those he loves. That's what we're called to do. In a moment, we will take communion, and that's what we'll be professing. That's what we will be proclaiming. And this morning, if you have never trusted in that, in Jesus giving his life, for you. It's an opportunity for you to do that. Here's the, here's the crux of the gospel, okay? Here it is. Jesus, the Son of God, came. He lived the life that we should have lived, but did not. Could not. He died the death that we should have died. And he is resurrected to a newness of life that any of us who would believe in him, put our faith in him, we are invited to experience that newness of life, that eternal life forever and forever with him, that even though we die here, we will live again to be with him in eternity. If you've never known that, you've never trusted that, I just want you to know that's available for you today and all it requires is your faith to say, oh wow, I want that. Jesus, I believe that you did that for me. That's all it takes. And so in a moment, Pastor Drew is going to come and lead us in communion. And this is an opportunity, whether it's your first time or you've done it a lot. 
to profess that and receive of him as we take that cracker, that gluten-free cracker which represents his body and dip it in that juice which represents his blood shed for us. And so I'll pray for us and then Pastor Drew will come and lead us. Dear Lord, I thank you so much again for your word.